just heard initially the sounds of Christmas celebrations throughout the city of Dayton, Ohio in 1992. Listening to Christmas music is a time residents of this city and every city look forward to. Music, laughter, parties, spending time with family and celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Then the echo of shots being fired throughout the city sounded the death knell of six citizens who wanted nothing to do with any such violence. Unlike the people who were reveling in the Christmas spirit, some wanted to pull off Rudolph's red nose and grounds Santa's flight on Christmas Eve. The four violent and vicious killers spent the next 40 hours making sure the city of Dayton lived in fear. Considering the Christmas season, I think it's only right to investigate a series of Christmas murders. Maybe you're driving home, getting ready for your morning breakfast, or returning to work after the holidays. Here is a story that will make your hair stand up. The story is set in Dayton, Ohio in 1992. Even after investigating numerous murders and aggravated assaults during my career, the brutality of these murders still staggers my imagination and my senses. In this exploration of the downtown posse murders of 1992, we delve into the events that unfolded over a period of 40 hours, the lives that were tragically cut short, and the enduring impact on Dayton's social fabric. It is a sobering reminder of the challenges faced by cities across the United States during that era and a testament to the resilience and determination of a community that sought to rise above the darkness that had engulfed it. This is even more relevant in American society today and the current violent culture we live in. Christmas is a time of festive activities, seeing friends and family members you have seen uh, all year and enjoying the music, lights, and events we typically have. However, in the town of Dayton, Ohio, the scene was very different for several people. Christmas was the last thing on the minds of the victims and the people who perpetrated these Christmas horrors. For many innocents, instead of a time for quaint reflections of the past year and the changes ahead in the next year, they were wondering how they were going to survive their night. Many didn't. The downtown Patsy was not just a gang of kids hanging out for an earthy and mischievous time around time, town. These kids had apparently been isolated from their families at a critical time in their lives. So, what happened to form this murderous alliance? A series of life events are what brought them together. A commonality of distrust and hate toward their fellow human travelers surrounded their hearts and souls, surrounding their humanity to the most desperate and heartless liaisons. This devilish gang of four didn't respond to stress and chaotic events in their lives like other teenagers might. They wanted to strike back and, like Batman stated, strike fear into the hearts of all, not just criminals. The original saying was changed to fit a criminal's perspective. Marvelous King, 19 years old, led downtown posse. By his side was Keene's 16-year-old girlfriend, Laura Taylor, the other members of the gang were 19-year-old Demarcus Maurice Smith and his ruthless girlfriend, Heather Nicole Matthews, who was 20 at the time. Each person was drawn together by the tie that binds, or in this case, the ties that bind.
A movie of this title debuted in 1995, starring Daryl Hannah and Keith Carradine. The story was based around a rural, small town who had found that those ties that binds and committed crimes together. The couple committed a double murder at their home and had left their incredibly young daughter in the car. What they did not realize was the police were waiting for them when they came out and a shootout ensued. The husband was shot but was unable to get away with the help of his wife. However, they had to leave their daughter behind. After a court hearing, the girl was placed in a home where she could not be found. This factor became the ensuing ties that bind. In other words, gave the parents an added commonality and motivation to commit more crimes, namely finding their daughter and getting her back no matter what they had to do. If you get a chance, be sure to watch this video. I know I get a little off the storyline sometimes, but you get the point I was trying to make. Sometimes homicide detectives need to think outside the box and open their minds to other possibilities and alternative scenarios. What happened between Christmas Eve through the day after Christmas was scrutinized and viewed as the worst crime spree the city of Dayton had ever experienced, according to the local media. Now let's talk about the victims in this atrocious murder spree. One of the initial victims was an 18-year-old student and a mother of a two-year-old baby who was at home. At the Dayton Patterson Cooperative High School, she was talking on the payphone when these four teens approached her. I have no idea if they were uh, words exchanged or not, but whatever the case was, she was brutally gunned down and shot five times while talking on the phone. I researched old newspapers from the original stories from the Dayton Daily News, December the 31st, 1992. Investigators, after questioning one of the gang members, said she was shot for her Phyla brand tennis shoes. It was also released she was only one credit shy of graduation. The victim's family lost a loved one and suffered as secondary victims of the murder. My wife Sharon worked as a victim advocate for several years at a clinic exclusively for counseling services for victims of violent crimes, including domestic violence, robbery, and murder, as well as many others. Within victimology, there are three classifications of victims. Number one is the primary victimization. These victims suffer the event or events firsthand. They can be a murder victim, robbery victim, or etc. Number two is a secondary victimization. The secondary victims are usually children unless they have, for instance, been assaulted in some manner. Other secondary victims have been family members and close relatives. And lastly, or third, is tertiary victimization. In general, society could be called a tertiary, tertiary victim, according to an article by Meadows in 2007. Another example could be described as a person walking on the sidewalk at or near the phone that the murder victim, Danita Goulet, uh, when she was shot to death. That would be very traumatic for anyone to see, wouldn't it? Homicide detectives have talked to many secondary and tertiary victims of homicide as they have a great amount of information to be shared with the police. As a matter of fact, the police will want to talk to anybody they can about the incident. You might wonder why the importance of police talking to the family, witnesses, and friends so quickly. 
I'm going to assume you realize the reason for witnesses. What they saw is vital to the police, but the police also realize that witness accounts are not infallible. Many years ago, while I was working undercover advice, my partner was on a payphone at a drugstore next to a Chase Bank branch. Not being invited uh, to be part of the conversation, I sat in a 1978 yellow Chevy clunker uh, at the steering wheel and watched a guy sitting on the concrete parking thing that is to keep cars from moving forward. I thought that was a little strange, but my partner had just returned to the car as he stood up. Not three minutes later, a Chase Bank branch holdup alarm came out at the bank I'd been sitting at. I knew in my mind who the robber was and sped back to the bank, but found out he was already gone, driven away by a female driver. A few days later, I received a request to go to the homicide office to take part in a lineup that may involve the holdup suspect. Bear in mind, I saw him sitting outside only. Once in the bank, he drew a handgun and pointed it at the tellers. They had the opportunity to see his face up close. However, you know what they saw instead? A handgun with a barrel that was about two feet wide, and that's all they saw. They were scared to death. I was the only one who was able to find the holdup guy in the lineup. He eventually pleaded guilty and was sentenced to prison. Getting identified by a cop is not what the defense team would hope for. As you can see, witness statements can be questionable, so the police must have added witnesses or forensic evidence. The point in my sharing this information is to let you know that crime, especially violent crime, affects a wide swath of people. So those who commit such crimes deserve the worst punishment they can get by law. Joseph Wilkerson was a 34-year-old guy who was making his way through life by working at the General Motors plant in Dayton. He lived alone, and I'm sure, like most single men, any time he caught the eye of a young woman, he felt flattered. He was taken by two of the gang members, Laura Taylor and Nicole Matthews, to his house. They showered him with attention and offered their time and themselves to him. He thought he'd just won the lottery, so he took them back to his house at their suggestion. Once inside Wilkerson's house, he was tied to the headboard of his bed with electrical cords by the two girls. It wasn't much later when he was killed by being shot by his own gun that was found in his home. The next part will shock you into believing evil is real and deadly. The girls, after killing Wilkerson, invited the other gang members to his house and partied there for the next three days while his rotting corpse lay in the home. As a former homicide detective, I would have to believe that plenty of forensic evidence had been left throughout the house. Teenagers are not generally known for their cleanliness and organizational habits. For instance, the use of the restroom. Did they flush the toilet, open the medicine cabinet without gloves, or leave behind any types of fluids at all? There are so many things to look for, and I'm sure the police did just that. Bear in mind also that the police did not know at the time who the killers were or their ages, so the fingerprints would be very productive in ga gathering evidence. While the police investigated, the murders continued. More murders occurred within the three-day murder spree. Laura Taylor, a gang member, went to the next victim's house and asked for money. Once she was able to get in touch with him, 
She led him to a side street where he was shot in the head while sitting in his car. Two more innocent victims were shot at the shortstop mini-market. The clerk, Sarah Abraham, handed Marvelous King $40 early in the morning and she was shot for her cooperation and died just a few days later. At the same time and location, a customer who was shopping at the mini-mart was also shot because he had been a witness. The downtown posse just didn't kill members of the city. They ate their own. They killed two other teens also. The gang approached one 18-year-old named Marvin Washington to join them in their escapades. Washington tried to explain to them that he was on probation and didn't want anything to make him go back to jail. He even told his mother he feared them and felt he may need to leave the city. Shortly after this conversation, Washington was found shot to death. Not only did they take their anger and hostility out on Washington, but they also waited until he was with his girlfriend and killed her at the same time. Her name was Wendy Cottrell, and she was only 16 years old. Police believe Cottrell and Washington were the last two killed in this murderous crime spree. Their bodies were found on December 27, 1992, at a local gravel pit. The investigation showed they probably killed just hours before the gang members were arrested. Although the police investigation is not public, I will speculate on some of the events that may have happened for the police to capture and arrest all four suspects. This will include the newspaper accounts of the investigation. The downtown posse was a loose-knit group of kids and young people that would hang out downtown, drinking and smoking marijuana and cigarettes. They had no jobs and would hang out most of the time. However, this group did more than that. They took the time to develop the innermost evil nature to make a conscientious decision to rob, steal, and kill. The police were familiar with this group and likely had dealt with them in one form or another on several occasions before. After the robbery of the mini-mart, a witness stepped forward, begging for anonymity, and identified three members of the gang who shot the clerk and the customer. She told investigators that Laura Taylor, Marvelous King, and Demarcus Smith entered the store. She further stated that Smith was holding a gun in each hand while standing and guarding the front door. Taylor walked to the back door to be the lookout while King went to the counter to confront the clerk. The studious young girl at the counter was Sarah Abraham. The witness stated after Sarah gave King the cash, he shot her through the lip and into the mouth, putting her into a coma that lasted for several days before she died. Unfortunately, Jones Pettis was a customer in the store as the robbery murder was going down and was shot in the stomach and died immediately. Thank God for this witness who came forward with her account and told the police what happened. I'm sure the information was invaluable for the investigation, even if they knew who may be involved at that point. I can also tell you that when all the suspects were apprehended, the police recovered several weapons. This would be added as a nail into the coffin of each gang member. The ballistics would identify bullets from each weapon that was used to kill the victims. Additionally, the group robbed a woman at a gas station by gunpoint, but she took off running, escaping 
from being killed by the murderous group. They did take her Dodge Shadow and switch plates from another stolen vehicle they abandoned at the same gas station. Dayton Police Sergeant John Huber happened to be out looking for these killers when he spotted the car, the Dodge Shadow, the victim had just reported as stolen. He ran the plate through dispatch and found that it did not return to the Dodge Shadow. At that moment, he realized this was, in fact, the car that had just been stolen from the gas station robbery. He called for other units as a backup to apprehend the people in the stolen car. It was probably a very good thing that Sergeant called for backup officers. It was later learned that Keene had been told by Taylor to shoot him and keep driving. Remember, in 1992, there was no social media or internet to draw an individual's name from and see what they had been doing or where they had been going or where they had been. There is no cell phone data to trace, no GPS data. It boiled down to the door-to-door -door canvassing by the police and chasing down every lead they could get their hands on. A lot of walking, driving, and knocking on doors. They were arrested and convicted for their crimes. Marvelous King received the death penalty and was executed on July 21, 2009. Laura Taylor and Heather Matthews pled guilty and were sentenced to life in prison. Heather will have to spend at least 52 years in prison before a parole hearing is possible. They are at the Ohio Reformatory for Women. Demarcus Smith was found guilty and is at the Mansfield Correctional Institute. If you want to know more about this gang and their exploits, then in that case, you can watch a documentary on Oxygen Network called Six Slaves of Christmas, or you can read a book published in 2018 by three of the officials from the investigation, which includes two former Dayton police officers. I hope that you've had a wonderful Christmas and a great new year this year, and the best regards for 2024. Thank you for listening to this podcast, this holiday podcast. I look forward to sharing more murder, mystery, and chaos with you in 2024.